Well, thanks, David. It's really great to be with you all this Sunday. I, uh, I'm, I'm, it's a real privilege to, to be here. I'm, I'm, I, we pray for you guys often at Stellan Park Baptist Church. We're really happy that you have David Fullerton as your pastor. I, I've known David for a number of years now, and I can honestly say, when I think of all of the uh, the, the, the young, upcoming uh, preachers and pastors, uh, I can't think of anybody that I'd recommend more than David. And so he's a great guy, humble, smart, uh, theologically astute, great preacher. And uh, you guys are really blessed to have him as your pastor. And so I'm very excited to, to come, give him a break preaching, and open up God's Word with you this morning. And so please open up Ezekiel chapter 1 this morning. That's going to be our text. Encourage you to keep that passage open as well as we look at it together. Ezekiel chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of, of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus, their wings touch one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and the construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. 
and the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above the heads toward one another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were a gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Have you ever had one of those moments when you were in the presence of something big? You know, I'll never forget the first time I saw the Eiffel Tower. Just looking up at it made my legs go to jelly. Or the first time I saw Mount Rainier in Washington State. I just, I didn't have a category for something that big. Or the first time I stepped foot into Costco What a wonderful, wonderful place. You know, there's just something about being in the presence of something big that makes you feel really small. And that's exactly what Ezekiel discovers in our passage this morning. He catches a glimpse of this big, glorious God, and it causes him to hit the deck, to fall on his face. But before we look at this passage together, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt disappointed with God? Have you ever felt let down by God, disappointed by him? Maybe your move to Northern Virginia hasn't been all you thought it would be. Maybe your future isn't headed in the direction that you would like. Maybe your finances have taken a hit since the pandemic. Maybe your marriage is experiencing difficulties and, well, it only only seems to be getting worse. Maybe you've prayed for the salvation of a loved one and, and so far God doesn't seem to be listening. Maybe you've experienced health issues in your family. Or maybe you've had a bad church experience or three. There are lots of reasons why we might feel disappointed with God. Our health, our singleness, our finances, our grief, our family situation. And, and maybe this disappointed is compounded by the fact that God seems just so distant from it all. You know, if, if on some level that's you this morning, then I think this passage has much to say to you. 
Because we're actually not the first ones to feel disappointed with God. So if you look down at verse 1 of our passage there, you'll see the context. Ezekiel tells us that he was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal. Ezekiel was amongst the people who'd been forcibly removed from their homes and exiled to a foreign land. Specifically, they were by the Kibar Canal, which was, by the, the, which was part of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian army had ransacked Jerusalem and they'd taken 8,000 Judean exiles. You can read about this event in 2 Kings chapter 24. The people alongside the river had no doubt seen some terrible sights. They'd, be, they'd seen friends and family members put to the sword. They'd seen people starving on the streets. They'd seen homes burned, the places where they grew up destroyed. But to understand the, the weight of exile, we need to understand the spiritual component. Because to be exiled was, was more than simply to be banished from your home. To be exiled was, was proof of divine rejection. It was to be cursed by God. It was a sign of his judgment. You see, God's temple was in Jerusalem. And it was the, in the temple where God met with his people. That's where God's sanctuary was in the Old Testament, the sanctuary that we read about earlier in the psalm. So to be exiled was to be banished from God's temple presence. So here's a people, no doubt, disappointed with God. Imagine the questions they must have had as they sat and wept by the rivers of Babylon. Why did God let this happen? Why has God rejected us? How can, how can God be good if he's allowed all of this to happen to his people? How can God be so powerful if he's allowed this to happen? Maybe you've asked similar questions in your own life. Even Ezekiel himself must have felt some sort of disappointment with God. After all, he was one of the godly ones. You know, sure, there were many people in, 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 in ancient Israel that, that must, have, must have felt disappointed with God, but at least they deserved this exile. They were terrible people, but not, not Ezekiel. Verse 1 starts off in the 30th year, which is probably Ezekiel's age. And since Ezekiel was a priest, verse 2, this would have been the year that he actually entered temple ministry. In other words, this would have been the year Ezekiel dreamed of his whole life. You know, some of us have dreamt of that day when we can finally drive without our parents. Others dream of the day when we'll walk down the aisle. Others dream of that day when we can finally get that dream job that we've been working towards our whole year, our whole lives. I always dreamt of the day when I got to go to Walt Disney World. And just as Disney promised, my wish came true. Well, the day Ezekiel dreamt about was the day that he entered the temple as a priest. This is what he would have spent countless hours working and studying towards. But here he is, in the fifth year of exile, all of his dreams shattered. Talk about disappointment. And it's amidst this disappointment with God, feeling like maybe God doesn't care, feeling like God has abandoned them, that we read, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, before we jump into this vision, it might be helpful to make a couple of remarks because at first glance, Ezekiel 1 seems a little confusing. 
especially to us modern readers. You know, maybe as I was reading this passage earlier, you were sat there going, what on earth is happening? You know, what, what are we reading here? What's with all the creatures, with all the faces? What's with all the fire and the lightning? What's with all the wheels and the wheels within the wheels and the eyes within the wheels within the wheels? I mean, why does God reveal himself in this really strange and bizarre way? Well, I think two things are helpful to keep in consideration. Two things that about God that will help us understand why he reveals himself like this. First of all, God is invisible. God is invisible. He is not a, a, a physical being, but he is a spiritual being. So I know we've got some kids with us this morning, which I love. That's so great. You know, if you're anything like, like my daughter kids, maybe you've asked your parents this question, why can't I see God? You know, we talk about God all our home. We, we think about God at church. We sing songs to God, but I've never seen God. Why? Why have I never seen God? And one of the things I always tell my daughter is, well, God, he's, he's kind of like the wind. He is invisible. He exists, but we don't see him. We, uh, the, for example, the apostle John tells us in his gospel, in John 1 verse 17, no one has ever seen God. Paul calls God the invisible God in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talks about God this way. He says, God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. But we sang that song before, didn't we? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. We can't see God because he has no physical form. God is spirit. So in the Bible, the invisible God, he manifests himself using visible things. And these visible things help us to see what the invisible God is like. So secondly, God is transcendent. God is transcendent. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is different than anything else that exists. God is totally other, utterly unique. There is nothing in creation that fully captures what God is like. You know, I think many people think about God like he's some sort of superhuman. You know, he's kind of like us, but he just has a little bit more power, a little bit more intelligence, a little bit more goodness. Not, not all that different from like a Marvel superhero. That's what God's like. However, God is not like that at all. He is in a totally different category of existence to us. So God is not simply the highest being in the food chain. So A.W. Tozer once said that we mustn't think about God as if he's, in the, he's the highest in an ascendant order of things. So think about at the bottom, you might have like a fish and then a bird and then a lion and then a man and then an angel and then all the way up at the top of this food chain, you've got God. That's not how we should think about God because God is as high above an angel as he is above an ant because the gulf that separates an angel and an ant is, fi is finite but the gulf that separates God from an angel is infinite. The, the angel and the ant both belong in this category of created things, but God is over here. He's in, a, he's in a category of his own. God is high and lifted up. Theologians call this God's transcendence. And if that hurts your brain a little bit this morning, then I think that's a good thing because God is too immense for our imagination. 
He's too complex for our comprehension. He is too infinite for our intellects. So God is invisible. God is transcendent. Now, if you put these two two things together, the question arises, then how can we know anything about God? If we can't see him, and if if he's different from anything else in all of creation, how can we actually know what he is like? And the answer is this, that God, in his kindness, reveals himself to us in ways that we can understand. He shows himself to us using things we can understand to teach us things about himself that we cannot understand. It's like when you get on your knees and you try to explain something to a small child. You use simple language and concepts in ways that you wouldn't need to do with a doctor or a lawyer. In the same way, God accommodates himself to us. This is the only way that the infinite God can effectively communicate truths about himself to finite humans. And again, this reminds us that God is big. He's huge, immense, and we are small. So small that he effectively needs to baby talk with us. Now, this is helpful when we read about Ezekiel's vision. Because I don't know if you noticed this, But did you see, as as I read the passage earlier, did you see how many times the word like or likeness appeared? So if you look in verse four, Ezekiel saw the likeness of four living creatures that each had a human likeness. Verse 13, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro. Look at verse 24. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. Verse 26, Ezekiel sees something like a throne with something like a human sitting on it. In other words, this vision is dominated by the language of analogy. Ezekiel sees something and he's just at a loss for words that can adequately adequately describe what he's seeing. He's exhausting his vocabulary using familiar ideas and concepts to try and describe the indescribable. It's like he's got a thesaurus open and he's flipping through it, going, I I don't know a word for what I'm seeing. It's kind of like this, I guess. God reveals himself to Ezekiel in this spectacular way. And in so doing, he reveals true things about himself. But even though God reveals true things about himself here, he doesn't reveal everything about himself. Because we can know true things about God without knowing everything about God. So God shows himself to be like this or like that. But he's so big, so immense, so majestic that we only get a glimpse of his glory. But it's a true glimpse. And it's enough to make Ezekiel fall on his face. So let's jump into the vision. My plan today is just to simply walk through what Ezekiel saw, and we won't hit every detail in the passage, but hopefully we'll get the big idea of what God's trying to communicate. So remember the context here. Think about the exiles. Think about Ezekiel. Think of the disappointment with God. as he abandoned us? Where's God? Is he asleep at the wheel? And then verse 4, God literally explodes onto the scene. There's a stormy wind. And coming out of the north, Ezekiel sees this great cloud 
dazzling with brightness all around it. The brightness is caused by fire that's flashing forth continually. And from this midst of from the midst of this blazing fiery cloud comes what looks like four living creatures, verse five. And Ezekiel describes what these creatures look like in the following verses. They have a human likeness, he says. But unlike any human I've ever seen before, they each have four faces and four wings. If you look at verse 9, we see their wings touched one another as they moved straight forward without turning. So try to imagine a square of four creatures that are standing with their wings touching one another as they move forward. And in verse 10, Ezekiel describes the four faces to us. Each creature had the face of a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. The lion was basically the highest wild animal back in the day, renowned for its strength and ferocity and courage. The lion also served as a symbol of royalty. The eagle was the most magnificent of birds. The ox was the most valuable domestic animal. And the human was the highest of created beings, created in God's image, invested with the most dignity and worth. And together, these creatures embody the highest attributes of creation. Did you notice the repetition of the number four in our passage? In ancient times, the number four represented the four corners of the earth. In other words, these four living creatures with four faces, they represent the entirety of creation. And did you notice that they're moving? There's constant motion in this vision. And as they move, we see in verse 13, look at verse 13, that their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. It seems as though these creatures are moving at light speed at every corner of the earth, back and forth, constantly moving. And we see how they're moving in verses 15 to 21. Each creature had a wheel. Their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, verse 16. Their rims were tall and awesome, verse 18. They each had the same likeness, being as it were a wheel within a wheel. It's difficult to, Im- to envision what exactly Ezekiel sees here. Most people think that these wheels created like a dome-like shape. But whatever a wheel within a wheel looked like, their function's clear in verse 17. Look at verse 17. The wheels enabled the living creatures to move in all directions without turning. It seems like Ezekiel is picturing some sort of divine chariot. Ancient kings would often ride into battle with a, with a chariot. And this divine chariot has the ability to move everywhere without resistance, freely and effortlessly, effortlessly at lightning speed. And the noise that is coming from this chariot is deafening. Look at verse 24. On one level, it's like the sound of many waters. So if you've ever been underneath a great waterfall, so maybe you visit the Great Falls on the Potomac River, you'd have got a sense of the power and the awesomeness of this sound. But on another level, it's also like the sound of the Almighty. 
Commentators aren't exactly sure what this means, but it's possible that Ezekiel's thinking about Mount Sinai, where God's presence was accompanied by thunder. And alongside the great cloud of verse 4, this makes sense. So the sound Ezekiel hears is like rushing waters on one level, but on another level, it's like clapping thunder. Yet, on another level, he says, it's like the sound of the march of an army. You know, I've never heard a real army marching. But you know, when I read this, I think about Lord of the Rings. You know, where the armies of Mordor are marching towards Helm's Deep. That's the closest, hopefully, I'll ever get to war. But that's, that's what I think of. That's, a, that's this terrifying sound of an army on the march. So there's this indescribable, terrifying noise coming from God's chariot. And in verse 22, for the first time in the vision, Ezekiel looks up. And above the creatures, he sees the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal. This expanse seems to be some sort of transparent platform. And above this platform, in verse 26, Ezekiel sees the likeness of a throne. <laughs> this, this throne's just so glorious that Ezekiel's like, it's kind of like a throne, but it's unlike any throne you've ever seen. It reminds Ezekiel of sapphire, which was the most precious stone at the time. But it's the one seated on the throne that Ezekiel's most impressed with. Because on the throne is someone who has the likeness of a human. He's certainly a king. He has the form of a human, but he's no ordinary human. And this king is even more glorious than his throne. In verse 27, he shines like gleaming metal, and he seems to be surrounded by brightness and fire. The brightness and the colors are rainbow-like. Now, if we step back a second, what Ezekiel sees in this vision should be clear, clear to us. He sees a divine chariot explode out of the cloud, and on this divine chariot is a glorious king seated on his throne. And as Ezekiel stands in awe of this king on his divine chariot, in verse 28, he realizes what he's seeing. Look at verse 28. He says this, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. I mean, even here, just notice Ezekiel just, just grasping for words. This was the appearance of the likeness of God's glory. Ezekiel's view of God just got a whole lot bigger. And he's completely overwhelmed. So here's what we've seen. God is on his chariot throne. And he's not static, but he's on the move. And look where he's moving. Amazingly, he's going into exile with his people. Remember, to be exiled was to be cut off from God, cursed by God. That was the, the punishment that the people were receiving because of their sin. That's why they're in exile. But look what God's doing. He is freely and graciously going into exile for the very people who rejected him. Think about what this would have meant to Ezekiel. Think about the exiles who had thought all hope was gone. They would read this, they would, Ezekiel would see this and he would say, God hasn't left us. God is with us, all is not lost. 
Now, what are we to make of this vision? What is God trying to communicate through this glimpse of his glory, not just to Ezekiel and the exiles back then, but even to us today? Let me highlight three things that we learn about God through this vision. Three things. First of all, God is everywhere. God is everywhere. So back in ancient times, people had this common belief. They believed that the gods, there were many gods, and each god had his own individual territory. So their presence was localized. Therefore, many people wrongly believed that Israel's God was only present in his temple in Jerusalem. And so sat by the Kibar Canal in Babylonian territory, the exiles probably felt a hundred miles away from God. But in Ezekiel chapter one, God shatters that thought. His chariot throne flashes to every corner of the earth at light speed. There is nowhere that is off limits to the true God. There is no dark corner of the earth where God is not present. He is present everywhere, even in places where he is not acknowledged. You know, as David prayed for Yemen in the pastoral prayer, God is there. Even if there aren't many Christians there, God is there. He's in every home because there's nowhere that is off limits to God. There's no country, there's no office, there's no classroom, there's no home that can escape the presence of God. His chariot throne moves wherever he, he pleases. You can't escape a God this big. God is everywhere. And I think if you don't know that this morning, then that should humble you and sober you. But if you are a believer this morning, this should comfort you. So God is there on those nights when your loneliness reduces you to tears. God is there as you receive those dreaded news, those dreaded results from the doctor. God is there as you battle another dark day of depression. God is there as you stand at the grave of a loved one. In fact, God exists outside of time. So that future day that you're worried about, God is already present there. He's gone ahead of you and he'll be waiting for you when you arrive. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what hardships you're currently experiencing. Maybe God feels extremely far away. Maybe you feel somewhat spiritually exiled, but Ezekiel 1 gives you a picture of God going into exile with his people. He's present with you if you're one of his people, and that's good news. Secondly, God sees everything. God sees everything. So it makes sense that if God is everywhere, he inevitably sees everything. I think this also seems, the point, seems to be the point of the eyes that we read about in verse 18. God is not sleeping. He's not, he's not like distracted on his phone. He's not turning a blind eye. No, God sees everything. So God sees the atrocities that we see on the news. He sees the injustices carried out each and every day in every place. God sees the suffering of his children. God sees it all. And so there's no suffering, no sin, no injustice that goes unnoticed by God. I think this also means that God sees the links that we click on. 
He sees the way we treat our spouses and our kids when no one's around. He sees the way we treat our employees. He sees our secrets. He sees into those deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from God's blazing holy eyes. So God is everywhere. God sees everything. Thirdly, God rules over everyone. God rules over everyone. So from an earthly perspective, everything seemed chaotic. The gods of Babylon had seemingly won. The wicked had seemingly gotten gotten away with it. Those who trusted in God seemed like fools because now they're in exile. But then the curtain is pulled back and behold, God is sitting on his throne and he is still gloriously majestic surrounded by brightness and fire. He's in complete control, still sovereign. The world's chaotic, isn't it? And maybe your life is chaotic, but guess what? God is still on his throne. He rules over everyone. Even though from our perspective, it doesn't look that way. But our perspective is so small. But God is big, and he is a big king And like all big, good kings, God will judge his enemies. There won't be one single enemy that escapes his justice. I wonder if you noticed the amount of times that this idea of fire came up in the vision. I counted seven times. Now, in the Bible, fire is associated with judgment. So God is not simply, he's not simply going going out for a spin on his chariot throne. He's not just going to, trying to show off his awesome rims on his wheels. No, he's coming with a purpose. He's coming to judge his enemies and save his people. That's why he's going into Babylon. And that's exactly what he does if you keep reading. And the message is this. No one can escape the king who is everywhere. No one can hide from the king who sees everything. No one can defeat the divine warrior who rides around on his chariot throne. Nobody. And again, this should comfort us as we turn on the news and we see so much senseless violence. It should comfort us as we think about all the evil we see, even the evil that's been done to us, and it seems like people have gotten away with it. It should encourage us as we, as we see America moving further away from, from Christian values. It should encourage us as we we look at a world filled with corrupt leaders and abusive cowards and arrogant bullies to know that, well, they won't get away with it because God is a holy king who is everywhere and sees everything. But I think it means we need to ask ourselves, what about us? What does this mean for us? Are we God's enemies? Let me ask you, how do you feel about the fact that God is everywhere? that he sees everything, that he rules over everything. Does that sound like good news to you this morning? You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're okay with a God who's present at church. After all, that's where he belongs. But not at work, not at home. You know, maybe you don't want a God who's present 24-7. You don't want a God that is involved in your decisions, your finances, your day-to-day life. Or maybe you're okay with a God who sees the good things that you do, but you don't want him to see everything. 
You don't want them to see your phone screen or the anger that you have towards others or those things that you hide away in your heart, the things that no one else can see, the envy, the greed, the lust, the racism. Maybe you're happy with God being a king who judges those people, but you're not happy with a God who tells you how to live. Maybe you're happy with a small, distant, powerless God, but a big, holy, transcendent king who exposes your smallness is really not what you're looking for right now. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if the God that comes into your mind is small, then that's offensive to God. You've created an idol in your own image and God hates idolatry. Therefore, God, this big God, is your enemy. And so if that describes you at all this morning, then this is the time for you and I think all of us on some level to recognize who God really is. This glimpse of God's glory should cause us to fall on our knees like Ezekiel and beg for mercy, to recognize that he alone is worthy of our worship. Now, as amazing as this vision is, it's actually not sufficient. In fact, the climax of this vision is not in what Ezekiel saw, but actually what he heard. So just look at the very end of our passage in verse 28. It's actually the voice of one speaking that is at the peak of this mountaintop experience. All of this vision is leading up to God speaking to Ezekiel. And that's what God's going to do in the next chapter. In fact, it's the voice in verse 25 that silences all the noise that's being made by the wings. Look, here's why this is important. If you've fallen asleep, this is the time to wake up. What Ezekiel needs most and what we need most today is for God to speak to us. Because a vision of God is simply not enough. If we want a glimpse of God's glory, we need to listen to his voice. That's one of the reasons why Ezekiel doesn't draw us a picture of what he saw. But he gives us words. The way God has primarily chosen to reveal himself in this world is not through spectacular visions, but through his word. We see this all throughout the Bible. I was preaching on Exodus a few uh, weeks ago, and we saw it in Exodus 2. Moses asks God in, in chapter 33 to see God's glory. And what does God do in chapter 34 of Exodus? He proclaims his name to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Moses asks to see God's glory, and what does he do? What does he get? He basically gets a sermon about what God's like. You know, that's why your church services are designed the way they are, centered around God's word. That's because David and your other elders know how God reveals himself. So as your church gathers each and every week, what do you do? You pray God's word. You sing God's word. You read God's word. You hear God's word. Why? Because that's how God gives us a glimpse of his glory. We need a bigger view of God, a God who is present everywhere, a God who sees everything, a God who is seated on his throne. But we can only get that glimpse of God 
if he speaks to us. And that means that this amazing, majestic, transcending God is incredibly personal. He's relational. He wants to communicate with us, not because we're impressive. We're small, smaller than we realize. But this infinitely big God is willing to humble himself and speak to us. He's willing to get down on his knees, so to speak, and baby talk with us, to explain what he's like in words and concepts that we can understand. Only if God speaks to us can we have a relationship with him. And God has spoken to us in many times and in many ways. But here's what you need to know this morning. If you forget everything else I've said up to now, this is what you need to hear. God has spoken to us most clearly in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what we've learned about God in this passage. So in verse 26, we see God condescending in the likeness of a man. We see him going into exile for his people. We see him coming to judge and conquer his enemies. That's what we see in Ezekiel chapter one. Yet Jesus shows us these things far more clearly, doesn't he? Jesus is the word of God made flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. He's literally God condescending to us as a man. And as God is holy and sinless, Jesus lived a perfectly holy and sinless life. Yet Jesus went into exile with his people. He left the glories of heaven to be crucified on a cross. And on the cross, he was judged for his enemies. He was cursed in our place. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? Because Jesus rules over everything. And so Jesus rose from the grave, conquering his and our enemies. Satan, sin, and death were no match for this glorious king. And where's Jesus now? He is sat on his throne, waiting until the day when he puts all of his enemies under his feet. In Jesus Christ, we see what God is truly like. Jesus gives us the clearest, most glorious glimpse of God. That's why when people saw Jesus' glory, they hit the deck just like Ezekiel. So we saw that before in Revelation chapter one, didn't we? After seeing the glorified, resurrected Jesus, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So if we wanna see God's glory, here's what we need to do. We need to look at Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. And that means that if our Jesus is small, then our God will be small too. So how big is your Jesus this morning? You know, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've not really enjoyed what you've heard this morning. You've not enjoyed hearing that God is everywhere, that he sees everything, that he's, he's seated on his throne, ruling over all. Maybe you've even realized this morning that you're not a friend of God, but an enemy of God, that he's much bigger than you realized. But you know what? I have good news for you this morning. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the punishment that our sins deserved. He took the spiritual exile that we deserved. And he promises to save everyone who trusts in him. So let me ask you, will you do that this morning? If you have any questions about that, then 
I'd love to speak to you at the end of the service. Better yet, go and speak to, to David Fullerton or any of your other elders. They would love to help you understand what it means to trust in Jesus. And to those who are Christians, how big is your Jesus this morning? Is he bigger than your disappointments? Is he bigger than your anxieties? Is he bigger than your shame? Is he bigger than your guilt? Is he bigger than the plans that you have for your life? Is he bigger than your hobbies, your work, your family, your comfort, your politics? Is he bigger than your fears? Is he wise enough, loving enough, sovereign enough, holy enough, glorious enough? Because if not, then you need another glimpse of his glory, a longer glimpse. You need to see him, God eternal, leaving his heavenly throne. You need to see him living the holy and sinless life that you haven't lived. You need to see him being betrayed and crucified for you. You need to see him experiencing your curse, your guilt, your shame, to see him defeating death as he rises from the grave and you need to see him returning in all of his glory to judge your enemies on the, on, the, on the day that he returns when he makes everything new. This, friends, is your Jesus. This is your God and he is wonderfully, majestically, gloriously big. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that what we've read this morning points us towards you, that this glorious, majestic vision that we have in Ezekiel 1 of God, we see even more clearly in you, who came down, took on the likeness of a servant, who went into spiritual exile for his people, who defeated his enemies and our enemies, who defeated Satan, sin, and death through his death on the cross and resurrection. We thank you that you're coming back one day to make all things new, that you're seated on your throne. Jesus, we confess that you are gloriously big this morning. We are terribly small. But we thank you that because of your grace and kindness, we can know you, we can be loved by you. And so we cling to you this morning in faith, praying that you would enlarge the vision that we have of you. And we pray all these things in your wonderful name. Amen.